0: This episode contains information about sexual assault and or violence, which may be triggering to survivors.
1: Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Storm Obrink, a sexual assault advocate, volunteer coordinator for the Rape Victim Advocacy Program, and a full-spectrum doula that does doula work within the Rape Victim Advocacy Program. And we are talking to Storm about medical violence. This is a newer concept to Stephanie and I, and we are so excited to cover something that dovetails so well with so many of our episodes, especially our trauma-informed care episodes.
0: So hi, Storm. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. We're really excited to talk with you. So the first question we always like to ask is if you could provide a little bit of detail about yourself, like your background, your education, those types of questions.
2: Okay, cool. Hi, my name is Stormer Brank. My pronouns are they, them, there. I wear many hats in my professional role. While my official title at RVAP is the volunteer coordinator, that does not encompass... All of what I do. So, what I'll talk a little bit about volunteer coordination stuff. I manage a seventy-person direct service volunteer pool. We provide crisis response to local hospitals and police stations for survivors of sexual assault. So, people typically think of us as the folks who show up when a survivor is considering having a rape kit collected, getting medical care, or considering reporting the police. So, I manage those folks. I also manage the six overnight paid crisis response advocates. That we have. And I'm also a volunteer coordinator for our Queer Health Advocates Program, which I'm a co creator of within our VAP. The other half of my job is direct service and providing technical assistance to other folks who want to learn more about working with survivors or working with the queer community or working with birthing persons. So, like, part of that advocacy service that I provide to sexual assault survivors is with a specialization in working with survivors of medical violence and an even more special interest in working with survivors of obstetric violence. Also, I have a lot of background in working with the LGBTQIA community because I started my sexual assault advocacy career working for Transformative Healing, which was a culturally specific program that worked with LGBTQIA survivors of sexual assault. Unfortunately, that got defunded by the Crime Victim Assistance Division in 2017, lost my job, kind of flopped around for a bit professionally, and then eventually landed a job with RVAP. I also think, too, that medical violence and working with the LGBTQIA community has a lot of crossover. So my clients tend to have both of those experiences on my caseload because of my specialization. I'm also going to be teaching a one-credit course at the University of Iowa this fall called "Responding to Sexual Violence," which aims to teach students about how to respond to disclosures of sexual violence in professional roles and interpersonally. I co-facilitate a queer art healing group through our VAP, which meets twice a month. I guess you could say I'm a very busy person, and also to this. Career isn't necessarily what I had envisioned for myself when I was in college. So I also graduated from UNI in 2014 in communications public relations, and I absolutely hated it once I got into the field. I hate fundraising and I hate PR because I think it's kind of fake So when I saw the position at Transformative Healing open up in Des Moines, it was my dream job. And that allowed me to make the pivot into sexual violence work because of my experience with LGBTQ communities before that point.
0: So my next question is, when do you have time to sleep? (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah. (laughs) That's not really my question, but...
2: Uh, sometimes (laughs) Wednesdays and Saturdays.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, how do you go without a little sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for real, though, the other question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? I do what I do because
2: sexual and medical violence are major issues within the LGBTQ community. And working with my community is where my heart has always been ever since I was a young person, even a high schooler, too. I've been doing... LGBTQ-centered activism since 2006. So we're going on a long time that I've been doing this work. I'm also queer, I'm trans, I'm intersex, and naturally with these identities comes experience. I am also a survivor of medical violence and sexual violence, and I have a permanent physical disability from one of my encounters with abusive healthcare providers. I won't go into that here, but ending sexual violence and medical violence, which sometimes overlap I believe to be my calling in life. This is my heart work.
1: Have I mentioned before that I love the answers to this question and we really appreciate you sharing that with us. You're welcome. I want to say too, I think it's important to tell
2: my story with honesty because there's always been such a stigma against telling your own stories about experiences with violence personally in the advocacy field, but it is often what brings advocates to the field. And I think that the stigma around that centers on people feeling that they will somehow be discredited if they disclose that they're a survivor of violence. But in reality, we are some of the best experts on it because we've seen it not just with us, but with other people.
1: Well, I think Stephanie and I would both agree that the we believe the opposite of what you said in that we definitely as qualitative researchers, we love stories. And absolutely. I feel like there's so much of what's happening within medicine that they're really shifting towards the storytelling because that's really how people connect with issues is if you can share a story. And so, I think that's incredibly powerful. So let's first start out. Can you share with us and our listeners, what is medical violence?
2: Medical violence is a broad term, very broad. It encompasses a lot of things. But the most condensed version of the definition I can come up with for you is medical violence encompasses abuse, which happens to patients in the medical setting, abuse, which is enacted by healthcare providers. It includes a lot of different things, and obstetric violence also falls under the umbrella of medical violence. So some examples of medical violence and how I see it manifesting, the Black maternal health crisis being one of them, the non-consensual sterilization of indigenous persons in North America and other parts of the globe. It also includes forced or coerced pelvic exams done to people in the gynecologic care setting. It involves non-consensual cosmetic intersex surgeries. It involves ignoring patients, refusing pain relief due to personal bias. Oftentimes, too, you'll see in communities of color and white people who are progressing at the same rate have the same condition. There's been a lot of research that indicates physicians will give white people more pain medicine than they will people of color, especially black communities. So that's one way that medical violence manifests. It also is care that is coerced or otherwise non-consensual that's inflicted on a person. And sometimes uh, it includes things that we think of as more traditional sense. So like what Larry Nassar did to his patients is definitely a form of medical violence.
0: You talked a little bit about some communities who are disproportionately impacted, like black women, indigenous people. Are there other communities where medical violence disproportionately impacts people?
2: I would definitely say that people with disabilities experience a lot of medical violence in that system. Also, LGBTQ persons, people experiencing poverty, homeless populations as well, and especially women generally when they're trying to access all sorts of care with special focus too on accessing reproductive health care.
1: And you certainly covered with the examples that you gave. And I'm just wondering, like, I think that when most people hear the term medical violence, you do think of something very egregious, like Larry Nasser in the U.S. gymnastics team. But what are some more insidious forms of medical violence?
2: Who I could go on about this one for a hot minute. So medical violence, we often think of it, first, I, I want to say we think of it as an intentional act. Sometimes it is an intentional act sometimes that intention is a little bit more complicated. So when it comes to medical violence, it's not about your intent, it's about your impact. Medical violence is built in. To the way that we provide healthcare in this country and in many other parts of the world. It's written into policies. It's taught in educational settings as being a normal thing that a provider should be able to do. One example that I can think of regarding education would be non consensual pelvic exams under anesthesia as a form of trying to instruct students on how to provide that exam well. It may be berating patients, lying to patients about their medical records, bullying them into one specific medical choice over another. It might be, in some cases, refusing to remove a long-acting reversible contraceptive from someone's body when they've requested it. It may be refusing to test that person. It may be refusing to provide timely care to that person. Sometimes it involves making a patient jump through medically unnecessary hurdles in order to obtain a certain medication, treatment, or drug. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I would say for this section, particularly. And it, it includes racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, ableism that we see in healthcare settings as well.
1: I think it's great and really interesting. Maybe interesting is not the best word, but really powerful to think of what you just said with how bias comes into play in policies, that this is really violence, that this is violating folks. It is medical violence. And so I think ca- you're really calling it what it really is.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to call it what it is, too, because what we refer to as violence, a lot of our providers refer to as health care. And that's frustrating. But yeah, it's, it's written in it is systemic. It's not merely perpetrated at the individual level. It's in everything that we do from questionnaires to our communication that we have with other folks, to the nonverbal body language that we have with people when we're working with them in a clinical setting.
0: So I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper, just so our listeners understand when maybe they themselves have done something violent and didn't realize it until they're listening to this podcast, or they've witnessed somebody doing something that's violent and maybe felt weird about it, but didn't really know how to say that. So one thing that I see a lot when you brought up the long acting reversible contraception One thing that I've seen a lot is providers saying, well, go home and wait six more months before I'll take that out because it costs a lot of money and you just need to get over the the initial side effects. So is that something that is considered medical violence? And can you talk more about why that would be?
2: Absolutely. Yes, it is considered medical violence. And the reason for that is because consent... Is only consent when it has the ability to be reversed. If a person doesn't want a device in their body that you put in there and they're saying, I'm withdrawing consent to have this device inside of me, it is medical violence to say, I know better than you. I want you to have this for six more months. You're stuck with it. I've put this inside your body. It also has an effect, I think, on a lot of marginalized communities too that have faced sterilization without consent or even knowledge. Two, there's a lot of communities that are resistant to getting a long-acting reversible contraceptive for this exact reason. If you were to go around to any given friend group that you might have in people that have uteruses, you're going to find at least one person who has had a provider say, I refuse to remove this device from your body you as a provider, you are tasked with honoring that consent and consent at its core. It's reversible. It's affirmative. To an extent, it's enthusiastic. Like, am I enthusiastic about getting a needle shoved in my arm? No, but I am enthusiastic about being immune to the mumps. So enthusiasm can be, I think it's, it's kind of interpreted differently in this context, but it's also informed as well. So you can't refuse to take something out of a person's body that you put in there when that person is saying, I don't consent to this anymore and be able to sit with yourself and say, no, I'm not. I'm not committing an act of violence.
0: Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. I think as uncomfortable as this conversation might make some people, because I've personally seen that a lot, not recently, but maybe 10 years ago but I do know it's still happening. And I think that we just need to sit in that and realize like, okay, what I'm doing is considered violent. It's just that consent, I think is really important. It's just like, if we think about sexual assault and consent with sex, you know, it's not just somebody sitting there and not saying anything. It's that they're consenting to whatever is being done to them. So thanks for clarifying that. So could you talk about how medical violence and patient-provider communication is related?
2: I think that communication is often the primary method that providers enact medical violence. It may be in sending inappropriate messages to patients about what they do believe is appropriate healthcare for them. It may be part of belittling the patient. It may be part of saying, I know what's best for you. Uh, sometimes it's like the communication of saying, like, no, I won't let you do this. It's communication that takes control of a situation. It's communication that ultimately assumes that the patient is not the expert on their own story and what their body is experiencing so when communicate that communication is the way in which we enact those power imbalances between providers and patients the power imbalance is what enables medical violence to happen so without that power imbalance medical violence has A lot less possibility of happening. I view it kind of in a way of the same thing as the violence pyramid. I don't know if y'all have seen that. But the idea behind the violence pyramid is that violence at the very top of the pyramid being like rape, murder, genocide, other forms of sexual assault is influenced by what's at the foundation. So what's at the foundation is things like misogyny, racism, homophobia, these beliefs that some people are not equal to us, these power structures that are ingrained into us, some people holding more power than others. And so from there, maybe it turns into derogatory comments, turns into other forms of disrespect, and it climbs up the pyramid into the forms of more pronounced violence that I think most people would agree what violence is. But the thing about violence is that if you look at it as a whole, it's influenced by what's at the bottom. What's at the bottom has to exist and be the foundation for what's at the top to exist.
1: That's really interesting and really a lot to think about. I think Stephanie kind of mentioned too, and in some ways I could hear some of our listeners kind of having this knee-jerk reaction that, well, I am the expert in this content and taking on that power dynamic. And in so many ways, also not even realizing they're doing it and kind of having this knee-jerk reaction of like, well, then I'm not going to send anything or say anything or almost having a fragility about what you're saying. I love what you're saying, but I can see that being really triggering for providers to hear.
2: I would challenge you on that. They're not triggered by it. They're uncomfortable by it. Being triggered is about like a physical reaction typically to trauma, but being uncomfortable with it, that's what people in power are typically. And I also see the same fragility replicated in other groups of people who have power, especially in white folks as well. When that fragility is afoot, oftentimes I see people who are refusing to confront the harm that they might be doing to their patients. Something that I want to highlight too, because I'm actually really interested in transformative justice work with providers. It's been something that I've done at different points in my career, including provider confrontations. One of the first things that I do when I'm doing a confrontation with a provider is I say, we're going to give you today the gift of a difficult conversation. A difficult conversation is a gift because it's, Not only believing in your ability to change, but giving you the tools necessary or a piece of information that you can use to become a better person. So by giving you the gift of a difficult conversation, this is an act of love. It means I believe in you and I believe in your ability to be better. I think that helps break down some of the fragility when I'm working with providers to be able to receive really negative feedback about harmful things that they may have done. But then the next step that I go into is that it's important to remember you're not the worst thing that you've ever done, but you are still tasked with holding yourself accountable to times where you've hurt people, too. So you have to think, what concrete changes am I going to do in my life to make my care better? for my patients. Because I don't think that there's practically any provider that goes into the field of healthcare that's like, you know what I want to do? I want to hurt some patients today. No, y'all don't want to do that. Y'all went to like school for eight years or something like that, and then like did residency, fellowship, etc. Okay, so that's a lot of investment if you really wanted to hurt people when there were plenty of other ways to hurt people. People invest in healthcare because they want to help others. But the way in which we have our culture of medicine constructed, especially with the power imbalances, encourages medical violence. If we ever want to see an end to medical violence, we have to entirely reimagine what healthcare looks like. Sometimes reimagining what healthcare looks like means thinking, what could I do to give my patients more equal power in these situations? Sometimes it's concrete things like self-swabbing. Other times it's going with somebody's preferred method of anesthesia, even though you wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but you're willing to try it because it's about that person feeling that they can have power and control over their
1: body. I really appreciate you clarifying. Yes, it's not triggering. It's it's a, the discomfort in it. And I'm just wondering, I don't know if we're getting too rabbit holy, but then what are some things that our listeners can do to be better or recognize and sit in this and move forward and what are some maybe some steps?
2: I think the biggest step that someone can take is to do work on themselves internally. And also work on your organization and also make sure to be a good bystander when you see others around you perpetrating acts of medical violence. So what I mean by internal work is really questioning the entirety of what you've been taught growing up, maybe in your social circles, maybe it's by friends, maybe it's by mentors that you really treasured. In the field, too. Asking questions like, is it necessary to restrain this person? And if so, why do I think that? What impact am I having on my patients? Am I communicating well with my patients? Am I actually listening to my patients? Am I giving them enough time? Have I engineered this intake form to be inclusive? In any way. And also thinking too about asking necessary questions versus unnecessary questions, because there are often a lot of unnecessary questions that get asked in healthcare too, as a part of patient histories or as a part of like providing treatment in some capacity. It's important to confront internal biases and ask, why do I need this information? Only gathering information that you need with folks as well. There's so much I could say on this topic. I think one of the most important things that a provider could do to stop medical violence from happening in their practice is to engage in trauma informed care and actually analyze what that model is made of with it's five different components of safety, transparency, and trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, and mutuality and empowerment. So trauma informed care challenges the power structure of healthcare. It requires power to be in the hands of the patient, not the provider. So when you want to challenge medical violence, you have to look at your care, not just from a patient-centered perspective, but patient-directed. Patient-centered means we're considering what this patient's individual needs are in individualizing their care for them, but it also typically involves an element of deciding what that care is going to be for that patient. Patient-directed care is asking the patient, what do you want? What outcomes do you want from this care? And also letting them know their rights, too. So it might be changing the way that a procedure is typically done to accommodate the patient's emotional needs. It might be providing pain management in situations where you typically wouldn't think to do so. Like, oftentimes, I have worked with a lot of survivors who have significant needle trauma, So one of the concrete suggestions I say is ask for a lidocaine patch before injections or IV placement, because sometimes the pain is heightened by that trauma response too. Also like giving full disclosure about all aspects of the procedure, not just the information you consider to be medically relevant to the patient? Like, will a patient be disrobed entirely or partially during a procedure? Have you named all the medications that you'll be using during the procedure? Have you thoroughly described all aspects of that procedure to them? And it also involves apologizing when you've messed up too. Listening, resisting the urge to get defensive. When I do confrontations and restorative justice stuff with medical providers while working with my client, as who's the patient at the same time. I see people get defensive a lot. I don't see people apologize very often. And that's often the thing that the client I'm working with wants the most, too. You have to be able to trust your patients to tell the truth and not insist on invading bodily privacy or personal privacy to get your answers, too. And while a lot of times, because providers will work with many populations that don't have a lot of education about their bodies, they'll say, well, I ask these questions because they don't have education about their bodies. Why not sit with your patient and give them education about their bodies? Make time for that because it's important too. And it'll help that person stay healthier longer as well.
0: Yeah, thank you for all those. I think it gets back into that informed consent that you mentioned earlier, for sure. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind walking us through if a person comes to you saying that they've been a patient who's experienced medical violence. So what is that process like for that person once they start with you?
2: To clarify, you're asking if the patient is going to a provider and saying, I'm a survivor of medical violence, and that provider is trying to figure out how to help with that person's care?
0: No, like, so as you are concerned, like, is your is our VAP? Or so if you have a person coming to you for your help, and saying, you know, I just went to this clinic, and this is what they did to me, where do you take it from there?
2: So if a survivor comes into me and says, I've been the victim of medical violence, I ask them the question what would you be looking for in advocacy services? What can I provide to you? Oftentimes in the beginning, I ask if they're looking for options to report or not. Typically not. Most survivors don't report this stuff. And even when they do, statistically, it ends pretty poorly. When we look at the the research for survivors reporting, especially sexual assault in the United States, the perpetrator rarely, if ever, receives consequences of any sort. For it. So the next question that I ask is, in a perfect world where unfortunately this still happened, what does perfect healing look like? Where's the place that you want to be? And so we make goals to try and get that person to that place. For some folks, it is very simple things like I want to be able to go see a psychiatrist and get them to give me the diagnosis that I think I might have and also uh, renew these other meds that I have. Sometimes it's I want to be able to go in and get a reproductive health exam, and I haven't had one in 20 years, and I need somebody to go with me. And we talk through it that way. Other times, maybe somebody was assaulted while they were under anesthesia, or they were lying um, with their face towards the sky. And they have a lot of struggles laying down on their back now, because of that. And so like, It can be exercises like laying on blankets out on the rape crisis center's front lawn to try and get into that safe place again. It can be accompanying a person and even so much as distracting them while a reproductive health exam is happening or negotiating with the provider to have the reproductive health exam done pretty much entirely by the patient, including speculum insertion and swab collections and pap smear collections as well. Sometimes it's sitting there to interrupt the provider when they start saying something really problematic, or they start not listening to the patient as well. There's so many different things that this advocacy provides to survivors, and I like to tailor it to the individual person.
0: No, those examples are really helpful because I I just hadn't heard exactly how that goes.
1: I do have a follow-on question to that, just because now I'm also curious. So say one of our listeners has felt like that this happened to them is services you offer is this everywhere like how does one find what you do i guess this is a newer this is new to me that this is a service that or you something that people can go to and get advocacy and help with this. So I'm just wondering how widespread is this and and where where do people find folks like you? That's
2: a good question. Yeah. So the services that RVAP provides are in an 8 county service area in the southeastern quadrant of Iowa. But A lot of the care that I accompany people on or like help them get, et cetera, get advocacy for medical violence related needs tends to be associated with the local hospitals, especially UIHC, because a lot of people will come in from other townships and counties because they do have such diverse services compared to a lot of the rural hospitals. I do not know about other programs across the U.S. that might offer the same service, I know they're out there somewhere, but I don't know a lot about them particularly. And I think that they are it's more common to find them in larger cities like New York City than it would be to find them here in Iowa, especially with how we are geographically so spread out and so much of our space being rural as well. Did that answer the question?
1: Yeah. What are, if someone is looking for this, what are maybe some Google search terms to help them find if they are obviously outside of Iowa?
2: I would say search medical advocate or patient advocate would be the things to find. Some hospitals I know across the U.S. actually have patient advocacy built into their institution. That has its pros and cons. Pros in that it's normalized and providers tend to accept the patient advocate as being a part of the healthcare space. Downside is that person works for the hospital. And so the hospital at the end of the day is the one paying their paycheck. So they may be less likely to challenge providers in the system in times that it would be otherwise indicated because of that, because that is a conflict of interest. And that's actually why in our queer health advocates program, we do not allow people who are currently practicing as healthcare providers of any variation, including mental health, to be a part of our advocacy pool. And that's because they have a direct conflict of interest while working for other organizations in the surrounding area. But if they're retired, or maybe they're just a student, they're not employed anywhere and like getting their money from providing healthcare they are welcome to join us too. They just can't be currently practicing because we want to eliminate that conflict of interest as much as possible.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yes, it does. Thank you.
0: So Storm, you brought up one issue that I wanted to talk with you about. That's kind of timely. Uh, You've talked about how sometimes patients have pelvic exams while they're under anesthesia for educational purposes. So just in this last month or so, Florida passed a law stating that All providers have to obtain informed consent from a patient before doing a pelvic exam. And this law came from a history of medical students and residents performing pelvic exams on patients when they were under anesthesia. And then they had no knowledge of the exam, at, at least before or maybe even after. And ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, who is the big group for all obstetrics and gynecologists. They wrote a statement recently, uh, sort of against this bill. They said, I'm going to quote from the article, the ethical principle of informed consent requires a process defined by individualized conversations based on individual patients' needs. Patient autonomy and informed consent cannot be realized by a state-minded form or scripted conversation. Rather, it is achieved through mutual sharing of information and individualized conversations between healthcare professionals and their patients based on each patient's unique needs. This fundamental principle guides our practices. So, Nicole and I were wondering if you could share your perspectives on this practice of performing pelvic exams without consent and also a COG statement against the legislation.
2: Okay. So- I have a lot to say on this topic, so y'all best buckle in. I have directly worked with and done healing work with survivors who did have these non-consensual pelvic exams performed on them under anesthesia. And I have seen the horrific after effects the patients have had to go through as a result of this medical violence. Sometimes it means not getting a pap smear for 20 years. Sometimes it means crying for a week before you go see the gynecologist. Sometimes it means not being able to sleep at night because you're scared of what will happen to you when you go to bed. So please note these effects are pretty freaking awful. And I've also facilitated restorative justice confrontations, like I talked about earlier, between patients and providers who've engaged in these specific acts. So let's talk about this for a second. Non-consensual pelvic exams are rape, full stop. Rape is about power, not sex. And similarly, rape doesn't need to have a sexual motive to be considered rape because rape is about the act of penetrating a person's genitals or anal orifices without consent. Consent is key when it comes to defining this as rape. With that being said, medical rape is absolutely rampant in the U.S. I see it in my work. I see it in the stories of thousands of birthing persons and people with uteruses and in the presence of postpartum PTSD in so many of the clients that I serve. If medical rape wasn't rampant, I wouldn't have a job. My entire job is built on helping survivors of medical rape heal. With that being said, the very roots of modern gynecology are steeped into medical racism and the rape of enslaved women by J. Marion Sims, who's considered to be the father of modern gynecology. So it should come as no shock to us that a field built on the medical rape of enslaved women continues to engage in medical rape towards patients in the present day and present a Black maternal health crisis. Just because your ancestors cut down the trees doesn't mean that you live in a forest, which of course then brings me to the ACOG. What has the ACOG done to defend patients from medical rape? Nothing. I see nothing constructive. I I don't even see a lousy statement, which let's be real, would be performative allyship to survivors at this point. The problem is that physicians are not making joint decisions with patients. They are deciding what's best for patients and inflicting it on them. And when a provider decides to engage in medical violence, patients have little to no recourse. State medical boards frequently don't care about these complaints. Hospitals serve to protect providers and refuse to remove providers from positions of power when complaints of this nature are filed. The ACOG, it protects providers. Not patients. And the ACOG is angry that the Florida legislature is creating an avenue to hold providers accountable to their actions, but has never, at least in my view, shown an ounce of anger about medical rape. We wouldn't have to legislate consent if providers actually made it a priority, which they don't. Let me ask you this too. When you were in to a provider last, did they ask to weigh you or tell you to get on the scale? Did they ask before putting the blood pressure cough on you? Taking your temperature? Did they ask to examine you or simply tell you that they were going to listen to your heart now? Now, I want you to think about that and know too that consent is the presence of yes, not the absence of no. So that's how we know that lack of consent is built into healthcare because it's built into even the littlest things like getting your blood pressure taken. Consent is asking, not telling people what they're going to do. So when the ACOG is speaking out against measures to enforce consent and create accountability for providers, they're advocating for medical rape full stop. But what can you honestly expect from them considering they're in the middle of getting sued for racism regarding their discrimination against Tamoria McQueen? Racism's violence too. And where you see some violence, you also see more. But I also want to talk about this other nuance too of it. A law isn't going to stop providers from engaging in medical rape. I know this because Iowa enacted a similar law in 2017 regarding mandating written consent for pelvic exams under anesthesia with instructional purposes. And I continue to see survivors who have had surgeries done involving medically unnecessary pelvic exams that they explicitly didn't consent to under anesthesia, which are often revealed later in the surgery notes or in conversations with a provider at the post-op appointment. The culture of medicine has to change, too, if we ever want to see an end to medical rape. So do I think that this law is going to do a lot constructive? Not necessarily. And I also think that patients are going to be coerced into signing the form, and that can later be used against them if they try to file a complaint. But I still think this is a decent attempt to create at least one more barrier to enacting medical violence against a patient, because it's mandating that you have to have some kind of a conversation with your patient before penetrating their genitals.
1: Well, and the reality is too, is how many people really read the consent of a surgery, you know, reading it word for word. So this isn't stopping them from just adding a line like, you may have a vaginal pelvic exam during your surgery, and nobody would catch it. This is terrible.
2: Yeah, I've actually done surgery accompaniments for people too. And I know that when there's a gynecologic surgery in process They announce several different things to the room for their checklist before they start putting that person under anesthesia. The fact that they have to sign an initial whether or not they want to consent to students giving them a pelvic exam while they're under or whether or not they want to, they have to initial on that specific section and they also announce that to the rest of the room. And it still happens sometimes.
0: Do you mind if I ask, like, I don't know why they're ob-gen residents are needing to do this isn't that the question of the century or why they think they need to do this i shouldn't say why they need to because they don't really need to but why they think they need to
2: i know why they think they need to so how it's been explained to me by a provider and i'm not a provider keep in mind that anesthesia relaxes the muscles in a specific way that makes it easier to feel the pelvic structures they don't need to do it without consent because when asked for consent a lot of people actually do consent to having this form of instruction done but for those who this is violating to they need to have the option to opt out so they they think they need it for those reasons but you can also gain a lot more information from an awake person if you're doing a pelvic exam such as have you got the speculum placed correctly does this hurt is something else uncomfortable about this perfecting the technique requires your patient to be awake for it
0: yeah that's what I was gonna say like if it doesn't if it feels differently relaxed or not you should learn how it feels when you're not relaxed yeah so that's why like it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me but it does like I mean, obviously, it doesn't make sense to you either. But I was just curious why they were even doing that in the first place.
1: I just also quick want to make something really clear for our listeners. This is all about doing a pelvic exam for the sake of learning how to do a pelvic exam during a time when someone is having a surgery for something unrelated to gin care,
2: correct? Not necessarily, actually. So if you're doing the obstetrics and gynecology rotation like that's a method of teaching that they use on that rotation too. So if somebody's going in for a gynecologic surgery that's going to be a part of it but they also have done pelvic exams on for surgeries that are completely unrelated to gynecologic care and that is a big problem throughout the United States, and it's documented in medical journals. And you will find many healthcare practitioners who will say, yes, I did this to a patient as a part of my teaching.
1: Okay, I just want to make that abundantly clear.
0: So would you mind also talking about, so if the patient didn't consent to this, so they didn't know about it before? Before the surgery, how did they learn that this happened to them after, or what are some ways that that people have learned that?
2: Oftentimes, it can be listed in the surgery notes or it's in a conversation with the provider. So while the provider may not always volunteer that information, sometimes that provider remembers that that was done during that surgery. I would say.
1: Well, and I remember, Stephanie, I'm sure you remember too, when we first started looking at starting the podcast and everything, we had reached out and heard stories from women on issues that they've experienced with their providers. And I remember there was one woman who shared with us that she went in, and I think it was gin-related, but they never relate to her that it was going to be a transvaginal ultrasound. And so when she came out of anesthesia, she was – confused that she was having some vaginal soreness and it wasn't until after the surgery that or after the procedure rather that they disclosed that well it was transvaginal that that's how we had to do this and access it and she she had no idea and that was a very obvious source of trauma for her and and something that she was dealing with
2: yeah that i really feel for that person because that is definitely medical violence
0: yeah so The ACOG statement, I was kind of upset when I was reading that because, like you said, I haven't seen from them and I don't necessarily follow everything that they write. But I haven't, even in this statement, I feel like if they were going to talk about how we shouldn't legislate medical practice or women's health or whatever they wanted to say, which I think that they did say that in there, but they didn't say at all why this law was necessary um, or was thought to be necessary, like the things that you said, speaking out against racism and, and what obstetrics and gynecology was based on. And so I think that was upsetting in my mind and to other advocacy groups. The way that I even saw this was we follow birth monopoly. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Yeah, on I follow them. <laughs> yeah, on Facebook. And they posted this and I started reading more about the law and the ACOG statement. So it definitely angered a lot of people in the birth doula community, and I totally understand why, but I really just wanted to hear also, like, get your perspective, um, especially because I think some of our listeners maybe never heard this or just seeing the ACOG statement only.
1: So I have a couple of things. So one, I think what's so powerful about this conversation is that so much of medical violence lies within communication and the power of communication. So I think that's something that I think is just so impactful about this conversation. Mm-hmm. And two, I think the other big impact is that for potentially many of our listeners, there wasn't an awareness that this was occurring or that what they were saying or doing is actually medical violence. And so I think this is very profound. And I know that we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm just wondering, obviously you're an expert in this, but say as a provider, I want to call in another provider who who I suspect is suspicious of medical violence. What are some ways to call in another provider when you're a peer?
2: So I've done this like a number of different ways because I actually called in one of my peers recently that is a provider out in the field it was probably about a year ago that we had like a very serious and very difficult conversation about medical violence i think it it starts with pointing out that something is problematic and that can be that can be hard for some folks to go out and say i interrupt this what you did is harmful to that patient but it's also important to be able to explain why you have to be able to sit in the discomfort of the conversation and telling that person why what they did is harmful. You also need to ask questions with curiosity and find out why did that person do that? What reasons could they have for it? Because if you can deconstruct that, you can deconstruct violence from happening at the root. So you have to ask questions with curiosity you have to be able to sit in discomfort with that person. You also have to be a bystander and interrupt stuff from when it's happening right in front of you, too. I will say in my work as an advocate and as a doula, I have seen medical violence happen right in front of me on numerous occasions. There's a lot of trauma that comes from this job, but I wouldn't change it for anything. But in those moments, I try to interrupt the person. And I say, like, I have these things that I go to, I say, you're not listening to that person. Okay, I understand that you don't think that this is evidence-based care, but this person wants this treatment. So what's stopping you from providing this treatment? Or maybe say, I want it noted on the medical record that you decided not to test for this. I want it noted on the medical record that you did not explore any of these symptoms. I want it noted on the medical record that the person said they didn't consent to you doing this as we're proceeding forward with it and the person is getting coerced or otherwise bullied into doing a treatment that they don't want. I also think it's a good idea to call people out when they're not listening and say hey let's let's slow down a little bit here and let me summarize what you just said patient so that I can clarify this because sometimes providing that summary and clarification kicks the other provider that you're working with back into gear thinking, oh, like I I wasn't being mentally present enough with this patient to really listen to what it is that they're saying. When all else fails, I think it can be useful to involve your peers or other leadership in having those conversations. And I think it's important to instigate conversations about medical violence within your practice or organization before you even see it happening in the first place and let it know that this is not an acceptable thing to do regarding patient care.
0: Can you give some examples of maybe policies or practices at institutions that would quickly lead to medical violence or just violent that you've seen?
2: Yeah, it can be complicated. There's so many different things. So I see a lot of institutions that make it a policy, especially at smaller reproductive health clinics, to not allow an advocate or support person to go back with the patient. And oftentimes, that's not motivation for patient safety. Sometimes they will claim that it's about protecting patient confidentiality. And what I found that it does is it creates a situation where an abusive provider can be alone with the patient too. And it also makes survivors of medical violence feel really unsafe when a clinic does that. So maybe getting rid of a policy like that or examining it or thinking, how can I um, ensure that that patient truly has confidentiality when they're coming to see me? Can I provide certain questionnaires in advance to them? Can I um, ask if they uh, would like to have that advocate with them and maybe have them sign a consent form for it? Other things that I've seen are mandatory pelvic exams or pap smears for birth control. That's a big one. Having mandatory physicals with multiple components to receive hormone replacement therapy, and maybe those components are things that a person doesn't want, including different types of invasive exams. Mandating that a trans patient receive a therapy letter before getting hormone replacement therapy That can be a policy that increases the likelihood of violence and also makes that person have to certify how trans they are before you're willing to give them necessary medical treatment too, when you could just provide it via the informed consent method. I also see uh, a lot of policies around surgery too. So when it comes to a patient that's trying to receive surgery at some of the local hospital's I've seen people get strapped down to the table if they are awake during a procedure, like for instance, maybe a C-section or maybe they just did some sort of other nerve block throughout the body. If they're doing a procedure on their lower limbs, et cetera. And that can be really traumatic to people oftentimes too, like saying you can't have your loved ones back with you in the post-op phase after recovery until you're basically ready to discharge can be really harmful or saying, I won't let you put back on pants until you get your pain to go down until we can get your pain mitigated somehow through these medications. When the person is asking for pants or asking to go to the bathroom, even though they don't have to provide any sort of urine sample or um, a lot of just gatekeeping, especially from nurse practitioners. Too. Nurse practitioners are, I think, some of the biggest gatekeepers in the medical industry for that. I'm trying to think through other policies that I've seen while I'm out there. I will also say that with COVID going on, a lot of the no visitor allowed policies at hospitals and clinics, they're intended to protect the staff and patients, but they're still letting patients come into the building. They're not doing any form of telehealth stuff for them as well. I was kind of shocked the other day when I took my partner to the clinic because they had to get a blood draw or something. And they were also saying no visitors too. And I thought, okay, if at least a fourth of your client base is survivors of sexual violence, that would be terrifying if you wanted to go in and get any form of reproductive health care without an advocate present, if having an advocate present was something that made you feel safe too. So a lot of those COVID policies getting enacted are restricting care from people too. And I think that there's something very deeply and specially harmful about making individuals die alone. Or even like I think of a case up in, uh, I think it was Cedar Falls, where a man had been held in quarantine at an assisted living facility for i think it's they said 124 days and he was terminally ill but not with covid and wasn't allowed to see family or attend his daughter's graduation and he had dementia and escaped the facility through an unlocked window and last i heard was being held in critical condition at the local hospital there and what gave him the motivation to escape? Well, one can only wonder, but I have a hunch. I have a hunch it's being restricted from any sort of support system that you have outside of that facility. That That sounds like it might be a motivation for me, but I can only, of course, speculate for that.
0: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about COVID and visitor restrictions. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I was thinking that we might see more people with trauma related to not being able to have someone during childbirth or during an exam because they're based. I mean, I know, I know that at the institution where we are was allowing a visitor for childbirth, but I have heard of hospitals like in New York that weren't allowing any. I think about the risk of infection, transmission, is that really outweighing the risk of being alone in the hospital. And I don't, I don't really see that.
2: Well, and I also see too, since the COVID quarantines have started, I have seen an uptick in the influx of people coming to see me for services specifically related to medical violence. And the incidents are related too, because they, when, so when people don't have advocates, I think that advocates can be really useful for some folks, in a way of that an advocate is someone who's not just helping that person feel heard and get their needs met in the healthcare setting, but they're also a witness to violence that might happen. And I've seen providers who are prone to violence act differently in front of advocates. It kind of makes me think about how there's a lot of similarities between psychiatric care facilities and prisons and that there's a lot of gross human rights violations that happen in psychiatric facilities. But I've noticed that people who have visitors coming in to see them to psychiatric care facilities are sometimes treated better than those who don't. And the same can also be said of prisons as well, because when somebody's coming in for you, they know that somebody on the outside is watching that institution. They're watching how they're treating that loved one, and they're going to stand up for that loved one too. So they don't want to engage in that medical violence as much with that person, which is absolutely horrifying and awful. And it's also what it is.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that you recognize that certain providers are more prone to this and that their behavior is different when you're present or an advocate is present versus someone who isn't. So that is very unsettling to me that there's a they have that ability to control even what they're doing or Yeah. Cognitive of what they're doing. Not that it's okay at any level, but the fact that there's a difference.
2: Oh, yeah. Like, it's not okay. And I also know the types of providers that are more prone to some of the heaviest forms of violence. So often they're people that are pretty darn burnt out in their field that aren't receiving the support that they need from their institutions. And also they're the people that have higher levels of power within their organization. As well. So, the more power you have, the more likely you are to get away with it. I also see if a provider has engaged in one act of medical violence, there's often subsequent reports of it later where there's one, there's many. So, having a history of doing it in the past, I at least, and this is just from my own personal observations, I don't have research on this particular because people don't research this topic. At all, I can't. I can barely find statistics on medical violence in the United States, no matter what I look up. But I can find plenty of information on what happens when patients assault healthcare providers. But I don't have a lot of data on when healthcare providers assault patients. Maybe we need to
0: change that, Nicole.
1: I know it's like that's really interesting, and I could see that a lot of time these institutes that have research within it are also tied to medical rules. So I could see where that would be an extreme conflict of interest to investigate something like that and to report that. So when you add that layer to it, I guess in some ways, I'm not surprised, but I'm also very horrified that you can't find any information on that. Yeah. it's.
2: I, I would like information. I would like data. I'd like to know the types of things that make perpetrators of medical violence more likely to engage in it in what situations. But I also see that there's a lot of overlap with the data that we have on what makes someone more likely to perpetrate sexual violence or what makes sexual violence more likely to happen. It's often when a provider has unrestricted access to the patient alone. That's more likely too, and you see that with childhood sexual abuse as well if there's someone who has unrestricted access to the child alone, like not all the time, of course, naturally, because parents have access to their kids alone all the time. But that's one of the commonalities in childhood sexual abuse stories where that child is more likely to have that violence happen if there's someone who is an offender that has access to them alone and is unsupervised for large periods of time.
1: And I think it's interesting, too, that you've noticed patterns, uh, again, unsurprising, but interesting, the patterns you've noticed in that the repeat offenders, I guess, if that's what you'd want to label it, is that they're burnt out, that burnout is seems to be a common factor, I think is really interesting. And yeah, that you've noticed a pattern.
2: Burnout is just so key. And I think it's also like, if there's anybody listening to this podcast that happens to work for an institution where they supervise people, this is definitely something I want you to know, please give support to your employees, please give them emotional support. Please make sure that you're doing continuing education. Make sure that you're giving them adequate time off. Make sure that they get to have time off when they're sick without being penalized for it. A lot of those things contribute to burnout. They need to be able to have their job ends where their job ends and be able to go home from it and be able to process the terrible things that they see at their job, too, because patients come in with some pretty complex situations and they come in with a lot of trauma, too. And that's what I know within my work at RVAP as well, I process what I see with my supervisor all the time because it helps me mitigate burnout. And it's important to me to have that emotional support from my supervisor because without it, I would quit this job.
1: Well, and what's interesting is there is a lot of research or at least a growing body of research, especially on nursing burnout, and you can find a lot out on Burnout itself in the healthcare profession. So it's interesting that that exists. But what you don't see in the literature, what's not analyzed, is how does that burnout manifest in medical violence or translate to patient care in this way?
2: Yeah, that's what I would like to see the research focus on. Like what happens to patient care when nurses indicate that they have a high level of burnout or any practitioner truly, because it does impact patient care. And I also see like in my own field, burned out advocates are some of the worst advocates that I've ever seen. And many of us have been there at different points. But if you're not getting your own basic needs met, how can you really expect to be able to be there for someone else in that capacity too?
0: Yes. Just like parenting. Right, Nicole? (laughs) Parenting in the time of COVID. So- If I could circle back to informed consent and dig a little deeper there, can you give our listeners some tips about how does informed consent look like? How can they practice that better when it comes to pelvic exams or anything invasive like
2: that? Yeah. So um, I'm really into talking about consent because I'm a rape victim advocate. Okay. So the consent model that I um, use the most when I'm teaching volunteers or I'm teaching other community stakeholders that are working with us for technical assistance. I use Planned Parenthood's FRIES model. So it's freely given. It's reversible to an extent, like if you take out somebody's appendix, you can't put it back in. But for the most part, it should be reversible. It's informed. It's enthusiastic. To an extent, again, my example about getting a needle shoved into your arm, not enthusiastic about that, but I do not want the mumps. I mean, it's also specific as well. So breaking that down, it's freely given. That person should feel like this is something that they generally want to do. If you notice that a patient is hesitant, looking down, has body language that says, I don't want to do this specific thing, feels uncomfortable with it, maybe is crying. Other times I've seen... Patients who fawn for providers if they've been asked multiple times to do a specific thing. So maybe that patient's already said no to something and you've asked them over and over again. A lot of times, too, especially with reproductive health clinics, I see providers that start going off on a patient. They're like, What? You haven't gotten a pap smear and you're 25 years old? Don't you care about cervical cancer? Okay, that's berating someone. That means that if you're berating someone, you're engaging in coercion which involves repeatedly asking after someone said no sometimes involves making threats if a person doesn't comply so well if you don't get a pap smear then i'll take away your birth control prescription so consent cannot be involved in coercion at all it's reversible so similar to how i talked about long-acting reversible contraceptives like the r in LARC stands for reversible it's reversible okay so if somebody says i withdraw consent I want this exam to be over. I want you to take this device out of my body. I don't want to take this medication anymore. You must comply because otherwise you're again engaging in coercion and non-consensual healthcare. It's also going to be informed, which goes along with being specific. So informed consent means you're talking about every last aspect of the procedure. You're also talking about all of the alternatives to doing that too. And you're making sure that they have a wide array of options that you can choose from. So you're presenting a platter of options and saying, which one would you like? This is the one that I think is most effective. However, if you don't feel comfortable with that, here's some other things. They may be less effective, but we can still do them it's important to note that silence is not consent because consent is an enthusiastic or verbal sign. Yes. Well, again, like enthusiasm can be interpreted differently within healthcare settings. It's, it's a very decided yes. So silence is not consent just because like you go forward and you're like, okay, I'm going to take your blood pressure now. And the person's silent. Like you didn't get their consent because if you haven't directly asked a person, if you can touch them, you haven't gotten consent. It's proceeding with permission only, not merely going forward until you hear no. And also, I really want to hammer this in. Consent is not a piece of paper. Consent is ongoing. So some of y'all, if you're at maybe like a smaller clinic or a hospital, you have a generalized consent form to treatment. That's not consent to everything. It would be absolutely ridiculous if I signed a general consent form to care from the local hospital here. And then they were like, okay, so you consented to care and we're just going to do this surgery on you right now without even talking it through or going through the benefits and the risks with me. That would be ridiculous, right? Okay. So we know that consent's not a piece of paper. Consent is ongoing. And it also means that just because a person consented to one part of the exam doesn't mean that they consented to all parts of the exam. So maybe a person consented to a vaginal check during labor, but they didn't consent to you breaking their bag of waters. That's one example. So yes, you have to get consent for every last part of an exam or procedure that you do with a person. Thank you for that.
1: I have one more question that I'd like to ask. I know we're getting at the end of time and it could be kind of a big question, but we have had previous episodes on trauma-informed care you mentioned trauma-informed care so i would love if we could dovetail or if you could discuss how medical violence fits in with trauma-informed care and in what ways you promote trauma-informed care
2: how medical violence fits in with trauma-informed care so medical violence is the opposite of trauma-informed care at its core
1: yes (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) it's what i would say so medical violence cannot like in any way involve the elements of trauma-informed care when i'm talking about rather like you're asking how i provide trauma-informed care
1: yeah like what you do or how you promote trauma-informed care to prevent medical violence Okay,
2: yeah. So, how I promote trauma informed care when I'm working with providers and patients together, I often go down the line and ask questions and try to interject wherever I can. So, transparency and trustworthiness is one of the biggest points. I make sure that I come prepared with questions when I'm advocating for a person to make sure that they're getting all of the relevant information about a treatment. There have been just like a number of times where a provider is saying, I want you to get this specific medication. And they say, I'm going to write you a script for this. I'm like, hold up. Hey, have you actually talked about the side effects with this person? And it turns out that the side effects are something that that person doesn't want for them. It also involves creating a sense of safety for the person. It's got to be culturally, emotionally, and physically safe. To be able to create, like, like it's, it's got to create a space where the individual's discomfort is not present, right? Okay, so when creating a space of safety, oftentimes I remind patients, you don't have to do this if you don't want to look for signs that they're hesitating on something. I also like make sure that we have a plan to get out or do something in case something starts to go wrong. It's a safety plan, essentially. So every time I I do an advocacy with a client, I say, okay, so what are some things that you definitely don't wanna do in this appointment? When do you want me to step in? And in some cases, it's the person holds a green marker And if they stop feeling safe, they take that marker out of their pocket and they hand it to me. And it's my job to help get them out of the building. It's also like reminding people you have the ability to check out against medical advice. It may not necessarily be like the best plan health wise, but safety is the most important thing, I think, for a lot of survivors of medical violence, too. And it's also like reminding providers that this person has choices and you have to honor these choices. So it means like the choice must include the recognition of the need for an approach that honors the individual's dignity as well. And asking questions with that provider is saying, hey, is there a different way that this could be done so that that person has a greater sense of emotional safety? But also too, like in my advocacy, I have to make sure that I'm taking it from a collaborative approach, which is why like when people call me a care provider, I actively detest that. I really detest that because doulas and advocates are not care providers. We are collaborators we are the the project is working on the client and working on their healing and helping them get whatever resources they need necessary i'm not like diagnosing or treating any illness i am helping them feel empowered to get what it is they need out of their healthcare so oftentimes i encourage collaborative approaches with the healthcare team as a whole and say, okay, how are we all as a unit going to make sure that this person feels safe when they get this procedure done tomorrow? What are you going to do to ensure that the rest of the healthcare team, maybe on the surgery team knows what the client's needs are so that they don't experience more trauma within this this institution? It also like, includes recognition that healing happens in relationships, too, with that shared decision-making. So clients come to us, sexual assault advocates and doulas, um, not just because they're looking for specific services, but because they're looking for human connection. Trauma happens and produces isolation, and connection is what produces healing. So it's about the connection to another person who gets it and affirms that and to some extent, kind of knows what the person is going through, although you can never truly know because you're not that person. But we've at least stepped into or seen similar shoes that that person's in. So it's about affirming that person's choices, being there as a witness for when things do go wrong, allowing them to emotionally process things afterwards, and also encouraging people to take the power in getting their own health care for themselves as well. So deciding what that health care is going to look like for them and also not stopping until we find a health care provider that's willing to work with them in the way that they need.
1: Thank you for sharing that.
0: So for our listeners, if they feel like they have been victims of medical violence, what should they do? So I will start with this. There is no should
2: when it comes to healing from trauma. A lot of people think that the thing that a person should do when they've been through trauma is go through therapy. I think therapy has many benefits. However, for groups of people who have experienced medical violence, often therapy isn't accessible to that person because the therapist is yet another healthcare provider and they don't feel that level of trust with other healthcare providers too. So while therapy is often one of the go-to answers for other colleagues that I have in the field, I would say this, you are the expert on your own trauma. You may not think you know necessarily what it is that you need right now. That's okay. You have time to figure that out. And also too, maybe look for options or talk with an advocate is one option that you have to figure out what your options are in the first place for healing. Healing is not linear. There will be some days where it's a lot harder than you would have on other days. It will not hurt in this specific way that it hurts right now. So it may still hurt years and years from now, but it will not hurt in the very specific variety that it hurts right now on this day. But It's important for you to know this is not your fault. It's not like you were the one that had power in these situations. You are a patient. You are expecting your provider to take care of you and take care of you well. And when they failed to, that is entirely their fault. They are the ones tasked with doing communication directly with you. It is not because you just didn't advocate for yourself well enough somehow. No. It is not your fault, and it is okay to expect people to not be violent towards you, because I think oftentimes I've seen survivors say, I should have known because my friend said that this was a bad provider, et cetera, or I I should have known, but they're the only provider in my town that does obstetric care. No, there's no should have known. There's no should do after this point. It is not your fault that this happened. Healing is possible, and I believe you. And if there's no one else in your life that believes you and you want to talk to someone who does write to me, you can write to me, you can send me an email and I will talk to you and just like help you sort it out. Cause that's my job. And I love doing it.
0: Well, that is awesome. Thank you.
1: All right. Well, Storm, I, and Stephanie, would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end?
2: My last thoughts, I want to direct towards providers that are listening to this podcast. I know that for some of y'all, y'all might have just realized that you've been engaging in medical violence, that you've seen medical violence or question if that's something that you have done. This is a starting point. You're not the worst thing that you've ever done, but you are responsible to hold yourself accountable to any harm that you may cause in this life. You can change your healthcare practice. You can change the way that you work with patients, and you can be a good provider with a little help and support from your community
0: thank you so much
1: yes thank you and as always we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the woman centered health podcast we are always looking for new supporters sponsors and guests so if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect let us know you can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at com.